0: Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is
1: Dan Abuhab.
0: Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, September 27th.
1: Yes. 2020.
0: Yeah.
1: It's almost the end of the month. Kind of a warm, humid day for the end of
0: September. It's an odd, odd day. Huh. It's okay. It's been... I uh, haven't had rain for a while. It's getting a little... Uh, well, we haven't had rain, dry. but we've had sort of a drizzly mist, but mm-hmm. it's not really helping the situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know... It's not warm enough to be Indian summer. It's not cool enough to be fall. It's
1: okay. We're in limbo. Limbo, right. Well, it's the end of September. So the big news, Tamsin. You want to spill the big news? No, you you, be, you do it. Well, Zeke, our youngest, uh, is the father of our first grandchild. Yeah. Which is uh, bizarre. Strange that we would be old enough to have a grandchild, but quite a, it's not really about us. It's, uh, we, so we have the name of our granddaughter is, Tamsin? Pepper. Pepper. We'll give the whole name.
0: It's no, no, no. It's a, There's a so lot I of names. I think Pepper wants to keep a low profile. Well... That's I think, what I'm hearing. I have to say that Pepper is a pretty interesting name. Pretty interesting name. Ridiculously adorable child. Well, if I do say so myself. Well, she's named Pepper. Yes. It's, it's, it's a lot to live up to. Uh, so
1: there you go. So congratulations to Zika Noel. Noel, I would say, was instrumental. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to sell her short. I mean, uh, she played... A, a substantial role in, in the proceedings and uh, everything went smoothly. So they have a.
0: Probably thanks to Noel.
1: And, and yes, and the pharmaceuticals. But uh, there you go. Healthy grandchild. What could we ask for more than that? So that's great. Um, as it happens, uh, we're doing this just before uh, the onset of Yom Kippur. Yom Your Kippur.
0: favorite holiday. Uh, you know, you, no one understands why you're saying that, okay? Because you don't like. Fun holidays. All right, all right. You thrive Indeed. on. Uh, I don't know how should we say yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah, you have to explain grim on um, grim grim holidays. So you have to explain
1: that uh, uh, Yom Kippur is a fast day, uh, and when you have a fast day, the Jewish religion, at least Yom Kippur, it's it's not that you can't eat meat. You can't eat anything. You can't eat anything. You can't drink. You anything. can't drink anything. You, you, can't,
0: drink anything. Can't, you can't even eat. brush your teeth.
1: Well, just, I've been telling you that for a long time. <laughs>
0: No, yeah, you're not supposed Thanks.
1: to. Thanks. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a little grim because it's the end of the 10 uh, day period that the, uh, the books, uh, that, that God keeps in terms of how things are going to work out for you the next year are kept open and you're making, uh, these supplications, um, over this 10-day period, and this is the climax. It begins with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, it's the 10th day, and the climax.
0: I so, think it makes a lot of sense. I yeah. applaud it, totally. Yeah, It's a cleansing thing. Yeah. It's a, you know, um, I don't know, an apologizing thing. Uh, you I think the Day of Atonement, Atonement is, is the That's afternoon. the word it's I call it. The Day of Atonement. Atonement.
1: Yeah, oh, That's uh, apologizing. And, I, and just to give... <laughs> credit where credit's due it's my father who would tell you that that's dan's favorite holiday
0: yes (laughs) but i think everyone agrees (laughs) and yet it's not uh, that you do it you do it well in the sense you do abide by the rules yeah but it's not like you're all sweetness and light during that's the way you're
1: supposed to be not sweetness and light Uh, so
0: it is for those of us who are non-believers yeah and are just spectators. Yeah, it's not it's the a best. It's a rough
1: deal. That's all right, but it, it's funny. There's it something in the times a few days ago, and again, it, it, the high holidays begin with Rosh Hashanah, and uh, that's you, not that same. You a should mention
0: day. that you may actually virtually return to your family's uh, temple.
1: Is, yeah, it's now, everybody's streaming now. Yeah, so you have so you the don't, opportunity to no, work.
0: no nest, not. You don't have to drive out the Belt Parkway. Right, and go to Long to get-
1: Island and try to uh, break in to uh, the high security that surrounds the, the temple. You it
0: online. Well, I'll, I'll
1: give a report on that later. We'll see how that works out. But, the uh, you know, I used to drive the kids out there for that. And uh, they were always struck by something that was in the Times the other day. There is a letter with uh, in the so-called, uh, you know, Vanessa Friedman answers your style questions. Of the Times It appears every week or so. On the second or third page and the letter says as a rabbi i usually think of rosh hashanah as the unofficial start to fall fashion it is when new clothes come out and it provides my glimpse into fall trends what are the fall trends i would otherwise be learning about at shul this year and uh Vanessa Friedman, who doesn't uh, get the joke here, just goes on to write two columns about fall trends, which the rabbi doesn't care about. But I, what he's commenting on... Or is, she. Yael. I think Yael's a male. What doesn't make any difference. What the rabbi's commenting on, and the odds are in my favor, uh, is that um, a lot of uh, people go to the trouble on Rosh Hashanah to come up with new, highly fashioned forward uh, outfits.
0: It's a and, thing. And, well, during the whole and Yom Kippur too. I mean, yeah, more uh, Russia Sunday. You Yom used Kippur to take too. the kids. Well, it, and the kids in our, our family. You only attended temple um, in the morning of, uh, at, for Yom, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. I, you I you didn't go right. out to Long Island. You're right. For, you're, right you're right. They saw it at Yom, at Yom, but, Yom and Kippur. But Sadie would be stunned. Sadie would be thinking about her Yom Kippur outfit <laughs> for months yeah. in advance. Well, she would. But here's the problem. Yom Kippur is problematic because just like today. Yeah. This time of year well, weather yeah. can be very hot oh, or very right. cold. Very annoying to get very dressed up when it's hot and humid. But
1: quite apart from Sadie's outfit, Sadie would come back would say, Mom, you should see what these people are wearing. <laughs> That's how she... Came up and, and you would notice it. So it's, it's So kind you of were glad holiday. that the
0: Times kind of took note of that in, I was grad, in a slightly
1: I, oblique way. Well, the Times didn't take note
0: of it. The, this rabbi took, the note it. took note of it. The Times took note of it. I told you. I think those, uh, think those questions are completely, you know, like the playboy questions. Like they're made up <laughs> right. by the editor who just wants to <laughs> cover was, that subject. It was a funny
1: question. I don't know. The, the answer didn't look like they wanted to cover the question. So in any event, sticking with Jewish traditions, you had a, an interesting story about making bagels.
0: Well, it's just kind of fun. I don't know if it's that fascinating. But, of course, uh, if you grow up in the New York area, yeah. even if you're not Jewish, yeah. uh, you eat bagels, right? And one of the problems for our kids moving out of the area, especially poor Zeke and Noel, mm. is you can't buy bagels in California and uh, it's ridiculous it's like you can't it's also very difficult to buy pizza okay and if you go somewhere that says New York bagels or New York pizza it's never uh, even close Mm -hmm. but uh, here was an article to help people in that situation. And uh, that's the story of Beth George, who actually is a lawyer or maybe was a lawyer. I don't know uh, how much she's really uh, practicing law these days because she's now a bagel consultant. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, she coaches people literally all over the world on how to make bagels. People come to New York, they eat bagels, Mm -hmm. there's nothing like them anywhere else in the world, and they want to go home and share that taste. So she got into the bagel making uh, world uh, again in in kind of a funny way. She had a child with gluten sensitivity, so she started making products with uh, spelt and one thing leads to another. She's looking for a certain kind of machine uh, to, um, I guess, make spelt bagels or something. And she uh, gets in touch with a uh, veteran uh, bagel machinery salesman, Frank Morrow, who is 81 years old, a cheerfully truculent New Yorker. Is the way he's described, and uh, I guess they kind of hit it off, and uh, you know um, the rest is history. Um, you know, she's in this uh, Spelt business. They had a great name, Spelt Right. Hmm. Get it? I got it. Um, and uh, that kind of folds in 2016 or something comes to an end. But, uh, you know, every once in a while, people are coming to Frank to buy bagel equipment. And he needs to advise, he gets her, Beth, George, to help them figure out how to use it. She develops a whole training program. People used to come to New York. She'd take them on tours of bagel shops. She'd take them to her commercial uh, kitchen and teach them how to use the machinery right. um, and uh, then send them home with videos and, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, everything has to be remote. It has to be virtual. Okay. Uh, but uh, she's still doing it. And she, you know, she's got, I think... She has uh, consulted for stores in every, on every con- continent. Uh, They're highly successful businesses in Scandinavia, in Australia, uh, etc., and uh, so forth. Um, and uh, you know, and people will have uh, be in dire circumstances, they'll give Beth and Frank a call, and Beth and Frank will figure out what the problem is. Thousands of miles away. Uh, so it's really kind of great. I should say that in case you're interested, because mm. she gets a letter like every day, uh, yeah, more right. than one right. about, uh, oh, I just got home from New York. I've got to make bagels. Uh, it costs, they say, about $225,000 um, to open a bagel shop. Wow. 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 Well, so that's, you know, machinery, inventory, rent, working capital. And she says, all right, uh, when they're develop when she's helping out people, she says, number one, you know, where are you getting your money? And number two, uh, who are you going into business with? And a surprising number, going with their spouses. Mm. And they seem to have a, a, right? somewhat of a success. Well,
1: there was that episode of Shits Creek. They were talking about opening a bagel shop, in it, but they, they never quite did uh, it.
0: Well, th- yeah, that was that was pretty funny because yeah. uh, there's nothing like it. Lots of times you get these things called bagels. yeah, And they're just like round rolls with a hole in the middle. Yeah. And you say, oh, this well, is not it. But, of course, we think about bagels now because that's uh, um, a principal food for breaking the fast, isn't it? Yeah. In your family a used to have like act, bagels. Or? Yeah. You, you want something a little bit light, um, to break the fast.
1: Well, it's not. It have, have
0: you know like simple, you know, plain, appetizing, uh,
1: yeah, lox, whitefish, that sort of thing, yeah. right? Um. All right, well, that's interesting. I didn't realize it would cost that much to open a bagel shop, but I'm not opening one. You talked me out of it. <laughs> uh, so there was an article. Look, we've been watching a lot of basketball because the NBA stuff has been telling. And compelling. how? And how? That's, that's,
0: so much basketball. That you enjoy it a great deal? That I've had to start another um, jigsaw puzzle. Yeah,
1: <laughs> okay. In any event, one of the stores of the Nuggets, who were just knocked out yesterday, um, is a fellow named. Uh Nikola Jokic. Uh Jokic is a Serbian. And um what uh, there's an article in the Times that says water polo shaped a Denver Nuggets moves on the floor. And they claim that the reason that this fellow Jokic, who's this who's this tall seven footer for the Denver Nuggets, is so effective is because he plays unlike any other player, he moves and passes like a water polo player. Now, this does not fall on deaf ears. In the Granger Abbey off household, because we have many water polo players who can critically evaluate such a claim.
0: Right. I was always interested in the um, sort of interaction between water polo and other sports, because mm. very often in water polo you have swimmers. Yeah. And if people have been serious swimmers, mm-hmm. they haven't played a lot of soccer mm. or baseball or basketball, and they are lacking some... Well, uh, you know, yeah, but but, but see, the Serbian thing is entirely different. I you know, know. It's the flip side right, right. of that. It's, so you've been, you've been you watching Americans. Yeah. See. So so that is kind of interesting. Uh,
1: so he grows up playing water polo. It's true. In Serbia, yeah. it's the biggest sport. And uh, he he never be, was on a formal team such that he was uh, committed to it like he's, he's become committed to basketball. But he played enough of it. And folks who were in the, or these water polo coaches, quote, in the Times article, and it's backed up by Granger, who's watching with us and is a water polo uh, expert uh, and coach, um, says that, yeah, he does move differently like a water polo player. How so? He does everything with one hand. That's the simplest thing. That's the biggest difference. What do I mean by that? In water polo, you're not allowed to grab the ball with two hands ever. Unless, unless you're the, the goalie. goalie. Unless you're the goalie. Well, he's not a goal. And the point is, if he catches a pass in basketball, he catches it with one hand. If he turns and shoots, he cradles it and shoots it with one hand. If he throws a pass, he's throwing it with one hand.
0: All right, so does he do the thing when a water polo player catches it with their right hand and then they just shoot it back out? Yeah, so he does, all, he, does all. Yeah.
1: he has tremendous control and feel mm-hmm. with a single hand, and it makes it the game different. Uh, it makes his passes super accurate. It makes him an extremely uh, effective at orchestrating the offense on the basketball court because he's moving it in, in a quicker and smoother way than the other fellows are who are casting over two hands and then resetting and throwing the pass. Uh, and he just moves differently. The funny thing is that, uh, and it's the way he spins around also in the way you do in, in the pool. Um, so it's, it helps him. He obviously has a great deal of uh, athleticism going for him. Uh, they say he's a natural athlete. He's good at volleyball, also. He can do all sports, but you know he doesn't look like the other basketball players. They have one. They have a quote here. They say other players always say, "Has he ever lifted anything in his life?" Or put it, you know, he doesn't lift weights. He doesn't look that muscular. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way they put it, "Has he ever lifted anything heavier than a spoon?" Uh, but they say with a ball in his possession, Jokic is a magician. He just wears sneakers instead of a speedo. So that's pretty weird, but I, <laughs> but I think it, it's true. The other thing I just want to mention about sports, because I'm not talking about football, I've just watched the Giants, uh, is that the baseball season is now heading to the playoffs. And you may recall that baseball was the first sport back, and everybody was in a dither saying, how can they play? There's too much risk because uh, the coronavirus uh, is, is out there, and it's just the season might be shut down. And sure enough, when the season started... There were one or two instances, one or two teams, was had to stop playing uh, for two or three games because uh, one or two players had the virus. And the most prominent player in the warm-ups to the season, I'll call it spring training, it wasn't really that, but they played some exhibition games, uh, who caught the virus, uh, one of the very few, was Freddie Freeman. And Freddie Freeman is a very famous baseball player, and he's the first baseman for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, and those who were uh, really were advocates for playing, notwithstanding what I'll describe as the risk that somebody might catch the coronavirus, is that these are young men. And even if someone catches the virus, they're not going to be set back terribly by it. And they'll be able to overcome it and go on about their lives. Well, I mean, no one's asking questions like that anymore. No one follows through with thinking of that way. But here's what happened. Freddie Freeman did get the virus. He He, he was identified as the player who got the most serious case of the virus. Uh, but he was able to start playing pretty much at the beginning of the season. And he had the best season of any player in the major leagues this year. It looks like he's going to be the most valuable player in mm-hmm. the league. Mm-hmm. So those who, uh, you know, again, without giving a statistical analysis, who who were of the thought that, gee, uh, these guys are in the 20s and the 30s. I think they can manage this. Uh, Freddie Freeman kind of makes that case for them.
0: And- Uh, That's anecdotal evidence. It is anecdotal evidence. One guy, I'm glad he's having a great year. Yeah. Well, Uh, it's anecdotal uh, evidence. I'm not sure he's having a great year because he got COVID. No. No one's saying he got a great
1: year. I'm really saying that it didn't really derail him. and didn't derail any team at all.
0: Okay. Speaking of being derailed. Yeah. uh, The article about a new cocktail book Mm -hmm. um, being promoted in the New York Times uh, cocktails the united states of cocktails by brian bartels uh he's a young man who has uh, just uh opened the settle down tavern mm-hmm. in madison wisconsin shout out to madison and uh, noel's family the, the hackers um, and um so I took a look at this, and and uh, he traveled all over the United States mm-hmm. and collected a lot of cocktail recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like fun, uh, and um, he met with you know various uh, you know locally famous uh, bartenders, uh, you know, uh, et cetera and so forth. And uh, let me see, he has uh, a couple of there's the recipes that the New York Times printed. One is the Hummer. Okay. Yeah. Which is white rum, Kahlua, and vanilla ice cream. Okay. Okay. Right. That that sounds like that whole that that genre of yeah, yeah. We just right. put you can put it sounds it, like a Seems line. like you could put any alcohol and right. ice cream, right. and uh, right. it would be pretty. Uh, tasty, yeah. but, um, he also comes up with, uh, some other interesting things, uh, including the Ray Dak from Salt Lake City and, uh, you know, some locally, um, I don't know, local specialties like, uh, Allen's coffee flavored brandy, which you find in Maine and almost nowhere else. Okay. So it might be fun. I don't drink cocktails, actually. Um but uh, they sound like a lot of fun. And it brought to mind, you know, I was looking at one of the recipes. He has here a recipe for the Hotel DuPont cocktail, mm-hmm. which is cognac and sherry and bitters. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me that we have this great cocktail kind of recipe book mm-hmm. in our possession called Bottoms Up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the full name is Ted Saucier's bottoms up mm-hmm. and ted saucier was actually uh, a publicist for the waldorf astoria for 40 years huh. and he just seems like kind of a bon vivant mm-hmm. man about town you know a mm-hmm. uh, very old school book came out uh we have the 1951 edition mm-hmm. and uh, it's got a zillion fun cocktail recipes and a shockingly risqué set of illustrations. Mm-hmm. And I must say, I mean, you glance at them, they still seem a bit risqué, don't they? Well, you and I have different thresholds of risqué. Uh, you
1: know, I think everything's shocking, but you uh, the fact that you're calling it risqué tells, tells everybody something. But, uh, it's a little out there. Yeah,
0: yeah. and I mean... And, uh, they're nudes. The, well, and the artists are... Well, they're nudes, you know, in pretty provocative positions. I mean, it's, uh, you know it's uh you know careful <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs> they're, not, they're not like they're in you know pretending to be greek sculptures okay yeah. they, no, they're, they're, they're quite uh they one had, might say titillating yeah. um they just had a hotel DuPont and the illustrations concept, right. are by some famous see i didn't people. recognize any of those names you know oh sure are... james montgomery flag um oh, yeah. he's a famous a, you know I, I his uncle him. sam right. etc okay mm-hmm. uh so there's so w- where's his illustration Where's I, I can't turn to a great book. It would later. T- it'd take too long. I'll show okay. you later. I hope this uh, is it's a fun book. It also has, you see here, yeah. I'm showing you the pages of the correct glassware. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And a glossary of drinks mm. with an explanation of what is a frap mm. or frappe, a highball or a Collins definitions. So that's fun to read. Mm. Um, oh, here. Here's the, okay. That's the James Montgomery flag. Hmm. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, again, a little bit, uh, um. It reminds me of Uncle Sam. It, a bit. What? So, <laughs> let me, let me just name some of these cocktails. Cause they're just kind of fun. Uh, one of the, <laughs> the, uh, here's one I like. Baby Titty. And this is actually, it was a popular pre-prohibition after-dinner drink. Say that nine times quickly. With anisette liqueur, crème yvette, And whipped cream, all right? There's a fun recipe called the Blue Florida Pam Pam. I'm dedicating that uh, to uh, Pam Borg, um, who were, you know, uh, Pepper's other grandmother. And that is from Paris. It's a recipe from Paris. And it's gin, vodka, and blue food coloring, okay? Um, And then, uh, so actually, one of the recipes, uh, the... um, the recipes here are also organized, well they're alphabetical, but there's recipes from all, you know, various bars and uh hotels, etc., from all over the world. Um let me name a, There is also in the Times article there's the Hotel Dupont cocktail. In here there's the Hotel Dupont cocktail. It's the same one? Um the the proportions are a little bit different okay uh little all right it's the same idea yeah okay S- uh, it's all the right. same so it va- same ingredients all right. so you've uh you sort of legitimized the whole thing it's it's real stuff um and i should just uh mention there's a few good ones like the Gene Tunney Punch. Well, do you know
1: who Gene Tunney was? Yeah,
0: he was a fighter. So isn't it funny that he has a, a um, recipe I'm called... I'm impressed that, you what's a, that he was a boxer. right? Yeah. Heavyweight um, champion in the so world. So, you know, there's the Dorothy and Dick. So our show is uh, somewhat based on Dorothy and Dick. Dorothy Allen Di- and her husband, Dick Colmar. Right. And this is a good recipe. It's a half a bottle of champagne and a half tumbler of pineapple juice stirred together... Uh, in ice, yeah. there is a recipe. I know you're um, getting bored with this, but I just have to tell you a couple more. All right, yeah. the um, All right. the goodbye by Joan Crawford. Uh, All right, uh, yeah. and uh, finally, the it happened last night by Earl Wilson, famous oh, columnist right. for the. Earl. Do you remember Earl Wilson Post. the Post? Yeah, sure. Okay um so it's it's a fun book visually but, it's it's a fun book it gives no you as i say i'm not that no interested can, in cocktails yeah, but, but it gives a kind of a sense of life in
1: 1951 yeah it's a great book i don't think anyone can get their hands on it we happen to have one of the few copies. no there
0: was a reprint oh, you can buy there? reprints for like 14 bucks That's well worth um it. but if you want our edition yeah. you have to shell out they run about 124 oh well, we're not selling we're all right. not selling all right two quick articles
1: you know, and, and you, you told me that this is, some of this is covered. Uh, this, this is virus related. Uh, one, this is the one that was covered. It's called trusty what noses sniff out the virus. And the, and the notion is that dogs can sniff out who is the coronavirus. It's more than a notion. It's uh, what they use to protect, uh, folks at the Finnish airports. Uh, they have dogs at the airport who will sniff, uh, uh swabs of perspiration or an, nasal swabs, uh, saliva swabs, and they can tell if someone has the virus. And it sounds crazy, um, but it has a 94% uh, success rate, which is nothing to sneeze at. And um, how do they do it? Nobody knows. Uh, they say it's it's odor, but we don't know that the virus has an odor. We just know it's odor and the dogs do it. So uh, uh, why is that not used even more often than it might be used? And there are two reasons. Uh, one is that uh, uh, not every dog is comfortable in an airport, you know. It <laughs> out a lot of the uh, dogs yeah, yeah. They get nervous in an airport. And uh, they, you'd have to do a lot of training to get them to behave themselves and go through this regimen. And uh, according to uh, the person who's the expert here in Finland, Finland would need 700 to 1,000 coronavirus-sniffing dogs to cover all the locations that they want to have covered. Schools, malls, retirement homes... So, as they, as they sum up here, um, we could keep our country open if we had enough dogs.
0: So that's yeah, I don't easy. even go for that, really. No, I, you know, because they have serious. dogs that sniff a lot of other things, that's, they diseases, and uh, they're not always... You know what? When push comes to shove and you're trying to train a lot of dogs yeah. quickly, you get dogs that are poorly trained. They're not accurate. You know, they slip up. They smell cocaine. They get excited about that instead. Oh, you know. Yeah. Well,
1: if they have someone with COVID who's using cocaine, it's going to screw the system up royally. There's no question.
0: Not that that would ever happen.
1: Yeah. So they. Uh, but here's an article. It's just a great headline in the New York Times. Faced with tricky. This is a different subject. Faced with tricky personal questions, people are lying more. Experts suggest. Was is kind of a mind blowing headline? Because uh, how do you have any idea? How often people are lying, even individuals, let alone to draw a conclusion like that across a whole population, it's completely nuts. So what do they say? Uh, what they, well, they don't say much. What they say is that uh, it's just an article, it turns out, uh, about how people respond to questions about coronavirus. And there's a concern that if they're asked, uh, do you have this symptom? Do you have that system? Have you experienced any symptoms of X and Y? Um, there's a concern that people aren't being 100% upfront about it. They're giving dismissive answers and not really, uh, giving the high quality answers that would support, uh, the best possible, uh, protection by the virus.
0: Really? So is this in serious situations or is this when, like, you're trying to get into, um, the restaurant or the doctor's office right. or the whatever? The, the, the and the they ladder, say, the have you done, really? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so, and this is, and the Prime draws from that the conclusion that what's going on? People are lying. And and they can't figure it out. It's like a disease <laughs> going on in the United States. Everyone is has departed from the truth. We're going to get psychiatrists in there doing analysis. When the answer really is, is that you know there's questions and there's questions and there's questions that are just arise as you put it out of some kind of bureaucratic regime. Which don't seem meaningful, which don't seem to be used in a meaningful, useful way, and a lot of people are giving those the back of their hand. That's what's going on. It's not that complicated. Maybe I'll write a letter to the Times. But uh, it wasn't a provocative headline. The Times knows how much people are lying, and this is on it.
0: Ding, ding, ding. Yes, museum update. Museum update. update yeah. Although I haven't been to a museum in a month of, of Sundays. Yes,
1: yeah, that's telling the truth.
0: Um, yes. You have an article about. Uh, it's a the review movie. of oh. a book. Yeah. Uh, called The Louvre. Yeah. By James Gardner. Right. And it's the history of the Louvre. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, what is a museum? It is a place where people gather time and again, united in something akin to ritual, searching for illumination, perhaps even seeking a sense of belonging. Museums are the temples of a people or a nation. Okay. I was, just, I was
1: just saying it sounds like you're describing the Westbury
0: Hebrew congregation, but, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. All right. Anyway, so it's the history of the Louvre. Louvre goes way back, mm-hmm. super way back. Okay. Um, it's life, um, uh, it's significant. I mean, it starts out as a, a palace mm-hmm. in the beginning, okay? And uh, so there's lots to know. It always hasn't been. It has like 800 years of history, really? okay? And it's hard to even know what's going on because there have been so many renovations, mm-hmm. so many changes. It's a tricky story. Uh, so this is a 400-page book. Oh, God. Um, so, <laughs> but sounds pretty interesting. Um and uh, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, it. Uh, I mean, I can't even go into all of it now. You're not see. doing all 400 years. No, I, I mean, a- it, It's also, I mean, 000. it starts out as a fortress, actually, yeah. then becomes a palace, then yeah. becomes, you know, another palace, blah, 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 you know. And uh, it's Francois Premier who really starts the collecting bulk rolling. Mm. You remember him? He's tromping around Italy, kind of trying to take over Italy, and and uh, you know, kind of. Um, Grabbing all the, um, artisans such as Leonardo. Hmm. Leonardo goes home with Francois Premier and, uh, hangs out and dies, uh, in France, of course. Oh, really? Right. And what, you know, he has some paintings with him mm. and that is part of the foundation of, uh, you know, um, uh, the, well, that's interesting. Leonardo, yeah. uh, you know, and all these things. So he just kind of is responsible for starting that, you know, and, and other, Kings are going to build their own collections, and then eventually, you know, there's a revolution, and uh, one thing leads to another, and it's no longer the king's uh, collection; it's uh, the country's okay. collection. So, it's a little bit long. It may be some tough sledding, but if you're interested, uh, it um, you know it's pretty highly recommended by okay, Edward Brockstein. So it's Rockstein. a book called
1: "The Louvre and it's by James Gardner.
0: James Gardner. Yeah. Not your James Gardner.
1: Not the Gardner
0: who does the art book. Isn't the,
1: uh, there a famous art book that's
0: Gardner? Or am I wrong about that? But that's from way back. Oh, way okay. Back, okay. Gardner's. But you're right. You're right. All right. And you had, uh, you had something else. Another one. Um, New York Times article called On the Trail of Caravaggio. Yeah, this is in the magazine section. You rarely see an
1: article like this in the magazine section.
0: Yeah, and it's by Teju Cole. And... It's okay. I mean, we'd love to read about Caravaggio. You know, again, Caravaggio, the bad boy. Okay. All right, yeah. always getting into trouble, uh born in Milan, he ends up in Rome when he's 21, probably because he was in trouble with the law in Milan and hightails it to Rome, where he's constantly um getting into fights, in addition to making these but, amazing paintings. But, but, but the article was about
1: uh, immigration or something, isn't
0: it? Well, the article is uh Cole's reaction to Caravaggio, and he kind of follows... Uh, the Caravaggio Trail as he's stumbling about near the end of his life mm. and Naples, Malta, Sicily, etc. And, um, you know, in in the process of going to visit some of his paintings in Sicily, he comes into contact with all the refugees that are flowing into Uh, Sicily and coming through Sicily and uh, so as he's looking at these paintings he's uh, being mindful of the you know the comparison of kind of the I don't know um, the pain the violence uh, the sort of I don't know shocking um, sort of characteristics visually of these paintings uh, bring out in him some of his reactions to uh, you know, and empathy with these people that are coming through Italy in you know in the refugee uh, situation. Um, what else did I want to say about that? He, um, it, you know, what in many ways it's more of a blog. I mean, it, he gives a, a good amount of history about um, Caravaggio's you know, various exploits and problems. He, you know, he kills a guy in a tennis duel. Ten, not tennis duel, tennis match. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an issue. Uh, one of his famous, um, altercations, not really, well, uh, actually lawsuits actually, um, came about that he's in a restaurant and he's being served artichokes, uh, with butter instead of oil. Okay. Right. So he, so, like he had um, a lot of issues. I mean, that's he, he, he had issues, and we uh, and we know about this from the court records. He hits the waiter, who he, he uh, feels oh. the waiter is mocking him. Yeah. Um, but uh, one painting that uh, one of the paintings that Cole visits actually is interesting. It's the beheading of Saint John. Yeah. And uh, that's a painting that's always kind of struck with, stuck with me. It's a striking image uh, of Saint John's head being cut off um to be given to salome right you know the story um and the blood is dripping from his neck mm. and actually it forms the dripping blood on the street below forms the letters begins to form the letters michelangelo which is caravaggio's first name and it's the only painting he signed in in general, artists weren't signing paintings mm-hmm. uh, during the 16th century so much. So it's intriguing for that. It's intriguing that okay. how he chooses to sign it in the blood right. of where, Saint where John. You
1: shared that with us. So. Uh there was a movie review in the Times. You don't see many movie reviews. These why are we things. even
0: talking about this? Uh, it's, it's, Nobody cares about Woody Allen. Yeah, movies. Let me tell you why I'm talking about this, okay? Just because. It's no you one's gosh talking darn New Yorkers. No, no, no. It's no, a no. New York sensibility. No, no, no. No, no. no one in the no one world, what, of all, outside of New Yorkers, thinks here. that Woody Allen makes you're an interesting movie. jumping the movie. gun. No. All right? no, no one knows
1: what you're getting yeah. So Woody Allen has made a movie called uh, Rifkin's Festival, which is being shown at the opening of something called the San Sebastian uh, Film Festival in Spain, and I guess it's an honorific to be leading the film festival. In
0: Spain or Portugal? Uh, Spain. Okay.
1: And uh, the uh, it's it's uh, it's a little familiar uh, ground for Woody Allen. Um, the protagonist is an older man in this case played by Wallace Shawn. He's he's arriving. Uh, to a Spanish resort uh, with his wife, played by Gina Gershon, who's, I can tell you, a few years younger than, uh, than Wallace Shawn. And then there's some question about whether she's having an affair, whether he's going to have an affair. Uh, the, no,
0: characters, the characters, not the
1: actors. Yes, I think yes. most people would have gotten that. But in any event, um, and then he's having a dialogue with God, as the Jewish characters in Woody Allen's films often do. I won't, I'll spare you that. But the, the interesting thing about the film is that uh, a lot of the uh, characters in her life, uh, well, Sean's character in her life, is played out in his uh, sort of thinking through or experiencing or having a dreamlike uh, connection with classic films. And he sees himself as the main character in these various classic films.
0: Right. So that's an inside joke. Uh, uh, okay. Not the
1: point of it. My point no, is the
0: point is I could go I to that movie. I'm not going to get those scenes time at up, all. Time
1: time time you're jumping the gun. You're overreacting. Here's my only point. And yeah, I, I would find this movie interesting. You might not find it interesting. That's not headline news. But but the interesting thing is, this movie's not playing anywhere. Uh, it's a nice review, but it goes completely uh, under the radar. Because uh, notwithstanding that it's opening this festival, uh, there's no place, no place in the United States, streaming or otherwise... To see it, right. It's in the review,
0: and at the end of it says "not currently available." Right. Which is, in the space where they usually say "streaming on Netflix," exactly. Or, yeah. It's
1: because Woody Allen such
0: a pariah that uh, that can't be distributed. So it's just. Uh, I I think it's just not uh, you know it's another Woody Allen movie. Who cares? Yeah, and
1: believe me, there's a lot of stuff that's streaming that that go, uh, would fit uh, squarely into the uh, "who cares" category uh, that this is not being distributed. The other uh, thing that's um, I thought is worth quick comment. And we've mentioned this before, a classic stage company there or something, there's something called Classic Conversations with John Doyle, who's the artistic director, speaks with uh, various actors. He, he devotes a single segment each week of 30 to 40 minutes in length uh, talking with uh, actors or theater people on various subjects. And there happens to be one that I was just listening to, which is kind of interesting, Was Doyle talks to Ben Brantley. Ben Brantley, who's the uh, lead theater critic of the Times, although I learned during this conversation that he no longer is the lead theater of the Times. He's resigned. Mm. So even when theater comes back, he won't. But I'm just recommending it because it's a pretty interesting conversation. It's not totally serious. There's a lot of name dropping. They're comparing their experiences with various uh, actors over the years, both U.S. and British. And and it's a casual conversation about the theater. So it's fun. So that's classic stage company. Classic Conversations. You can pick it off of, of the website.
0: Okay. With John Doyle and Ben Bradley. Ben Brantley. Brantley, yeah. Brantley. Yes. Okay. And just to um, end things here, there's an interesting uh, story in the Wall Street Journal this weekend, okay. uh, in the business section, uh, about Maggie Lena Walker, mm-hmm. uh, who was... Uh, the headline is, Daughter of a Slave, She Built a Bank became the first black woman to run a U.S. bank facing fierce opposition. Walker became the first black woman ever to head a U.S. bank when she founded the St. Luke penny savings bank in richmond virginia in 1903 Mm. okay um her mother was an illiterate teenager when walker was born historians believe that her mother was uh, raped by a white confederate uh, soldier um and uh anyway walker helped out uh, walker's mother worked as a washerwoman uh and walker helped her out as she was growing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, When she does graduate, she teaches for a few years and then becomes part, uh, um, she actually um, gets a job at the St. Luke, uh, what do you call it? Order of St. Luke, a mutual benefit society um, that was involved in providing insurance, educational funding, and other financial services to black people after the war Mm. after the civil war and uh, one thing leads to another. She's a tremendous force Mm. in this business. She builds it up and she ends up, um, starting a bank and, uh, it's really quite, uh, a great story. Um, and, uh, um, what else do I want to say that's interesting, uh, about this? Uh, not just her efforts, but, uh, she uh, not only was there a bank she opened uh, a um retail store a department store which and a um newspaper i think um and uh so anyway i'm i'm really uh, messing this up it's quite a good story but um she made loans as small as 5 dollars most mortgages required a 40% down payment and matured in 5 years with terms much tighter for black borrowers. St. Luke, however, would accepted down payments as low as 10% for mortgages and let home uh, buyers refinance as needed. Um, By the 1920s, St. Luke customers had fully paid off nearly 650 mortgages. Almost 40% of black homes in Richmond were owned by their occupants. The highest in the United States. Wow. So she provided a real, um, service. I mean, Richmond's having some tough times, uh, even now. Uh, another interesting aspect, uh, by the 1920s, at least a hundred Black women worked at St. Luke's Enterprises, probably more than any other organization in, in U.S financial industry at that time Mm uh so she was really quite a force uh the um the business the the bank continues to grow she absorbs some other banks and uh you know uh makes it through the great depression okay Mm -hmm. not easily done by a financial institution and in 2009 um what still existed uh, well it becomes the Consolidated Bank and Trust 2009. It is acquired by the, the West Virginia-based Premier Financial Bank Corp. Uh, incorporated. Uh, so uh, another great force in American business history. And she was a woman, oh, a black woman. What's her name? Maggie Lena Walker. Okay.
1: All right. So that's uh, what we've got this week. Uh, I think uh, the only thing to do is to find that uh, cocktail book, put together a couple of cocktails before Yom Kippur. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and know what? I'm we? just going to get on the FaceTime with Pepper. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you might. You, you can do both. That's a, enough of a That's thrill enough. for me. That's enough of a thrill for you? I can okay. see that.
1: All right. We'll see you next week. This is Tamson Granger. <laughs> and Dan Abuhoff. Well,
0: Tamson and Dan read the paper? See you around.